Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. On June 18th, 2022, for <laughs> podcasters. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the pod and the pendulum. We are back after a very brief sabbatical. Some life stuff came up. And since today's movie is really one of the big ones, uh, I definitely wanted to make sure that we had the chance to do the research and the reflecting in order to do it justice. So today, folks, we are going to talk about one of the true masterworks of horror, 19, 1974s. I almost said 1994s. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that one, too. 1974s, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed by Steven Spielberg. I kid, it's directed by... Toby Hooper, we all know Spielberg directed <laughs> Poltergeist. As always, oh. <laughs> as always, I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm joined by three, two of our regulars and one of our favorite guests today. We have from the Bloody Blunts podcast, Devon Taylor. How are we, Devon? I'm doing fantastic. The Saw is family. We are te- talking the Texas Chain Space saw massacre this is very important for uh, all the naming uh, conundrums we're going to run into for the rest of this franchise <laughs> <That's> true <laughs> i do not have a space here in my notes for any of them that is true um 
All right, moving on. Uh, we also have with us, coming from us from the Movies for Life podcast, Brian Kuyper. Brian, how are we? Uh, doing great. Nice to be back. You are spending your first day of summer break with us. I am. Wow. I am, yeah. We are like a vacation. We yes, are definitely. definitely. Like an oasis. Definitely. But we also have with us, returning as a guest from the Bodies of Horror podcast, I am thrilled to welcome Nicole Goville. Hello, hello. How are you? I am doing well. I'm so excited to be here. I am thrilled to have you because I knew as soon as we announced we were going to be doing this series and I needed to have you on uh, in order (laughs) to talk about one character in particular, which we'll get to uh, at some point today (laughs) as I'm going through my notes here. So it's always a thrill to talk to you, Nicole. So welcome back. So, you know what? We got a long show ahead of us. I would say, listeners, pack a lunch. Um, I think this is going to be one of the big ones. Uh, so, before we take a deep dive into this like storied history, let's take a few moments and give our first impressions when we first watch this movie and maybe where it sits overall in our lo- horror loving hearts. So, Nicole, as our guest, why don't you start things off? Sure. So I actually saw this, I want to say when I was around middle school age, because this film has such, I guess, kind of a a reputation as being really intense, gory, bloody, scary, all of the things. And even though I loved horror, I thought, can I go there? Can I go to there, honestly, and sustain so I ended up watching it, and um, yeah, it quickly became one of my favorite movies of all time, and one of the horror movies that I would secretly try to squeeze into movie nights with friends and be like, hey, you want to watch this? No, we don't. Too bad. You're at my house. We're going to watch it. Bye. Mm-hmm. And when you say that it was um, kind of like early on, or you were like one of those, like, this might be too intense for me. Yeah. What were you watching for horror at that point? Like, what was, like, in the rotation? So I was very much into Child's Play series at that point, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. which, again, to be like, The Exorcist is a walk in the park, but mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, don't know about that one. Um, so I was really watching really a little bit of everything. I had an older sister that um, I had kind of a secret place in the kitchen that I could sit when she would have her movie nights with her friends um, because I wasn't allowed to be like in the presence of your older sisters. Yeah. Mm. So I could sit in the kitchen by the stove in my little cubby and watch what they were watching. And so, um, yeah, I had watched quite a bit, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of those holdouts where I was like, I don't know if I'm, truly prepared for what this film promises Mm -hmm. and did it deliver in terms of like what you had built in your mind did it deliver on that uh no but yes no in terms of that i thought i was going to get like a blood fest uh i thought it was just going to be body parts flying every which way um i also worked in um kind of a, uh, at that time, our our 
area, I grew up in farmland, was becoming um, kind of confinements, like hog confinements. So I worked there and one of my jobs was to help prepare pigs to be butchered. Wow. And so we would get like shipments of pigs, we would sort through them and I'd be like, all right, well, this pig's got to go. Um, so, um, yeah, it was just kind of like a perfect film that really, I think, encompassed so much, but at the same time, like, it delivered, I think, on themes and just scares Mm -hmm. and intensity, but not on the gore, which, again, was great because I could kind of sneak it in and be like, oh, it's not that bloody, guys. It's fine. And it was almost a PG movie. Exactly. I'd be like, guys, this is like The Little Mermaid. We've seen that. It's fine. Excellent. Devon, how about yourself? Yeah, so my first time, um, I I used to have a podcast back in 2017, and um, that was the first time I had watched this film. Um, I had seen the, the 2003 remake first. Um, I had even and the the prequel that followed it like I'd seen those ones and um, I I don't even know why I never got around to it um, I don't know if it was just you know worried about the hype and the reputation of it or um, or something like that or just or from the the 2003 remake like Leatherface wasn't um, as compelling to me or as, as uh, didn't interest me as much um, which, you know, was completely turned around after I watched this one. Um, I fell in love with it from like the first go around of it. It, it, uh, it's one of those movies that you just kind of watch it, that you, you know, that you're like kind of watching something special. Like it's, it's just, um, it, it's, everything is firing on, you know, very specific cylinders. Like every, it's like one of those things that like a, a perfect storm, like everything had to go, uh, a certain ways, you know, and, you know, we'll kind of get into a lot of the, the uh, production as far as that goes. But um, it, it, despite and everything, everything just like kind of comes together in this perfect just nightmare of a movie. Um, it, you know, it, it definitely has the, the dark sense of humor uh, to it. Like I find myself, even though this movie is very like visceral and uncomfortable, I do find myself laughing quite a bit like throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I see, I saw the the dark humor that other people uh, did not see from Hooper that he had to like very much exaggerate in the next one. Um, but I've, I've always found this one um, equally, um, you know, as, you know, visceral as an experience, but then also uh, just very entertaining and funny. Um, I, I noticed a uh, thing on this most recent rewatch, you know how everybody's always been saying that uh, they want Wes Anderson to make a horror film. Mm-hmm. There's scenes in this movie that I'm like, eh, I think we kind of get that. <laughs> like we, I think we get uh, what that would look like as far as, um, you know, the first scene with the hitchhiker and uh, some other, and the dinner scene that, you know, we'll get more into detail, but uh, I, I love this movie. I fell, fell in love with it. First go around, got a tattoo of it. I wear my uh, directed by Toby Hooper t-shirt to work all the time. Um, it's a this a, is a banger of a movie, so I'm excited to really uh, get to dig into it. So I'm I'm just making a note here in the margin saying Wes Anderson dinner scene hitchhiker. So Devon, we are gonna address that when we get into the <laughs> movie here because I have never thought of that before. So I uh, 
I definitely want to hear more of that. So I'd love that little teaser. That's perfect. Yeah. It's in the editing style. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I'll preface it with now. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get into a little more excited to uh, divulge this theory. Okay. Brian, how about yourself? Okay. So the very first thing I remember about Texas Chainsaw was the first time we went to a video store. It was like a mom and pop video store. And I, my brother said, Hey, look at this. And he showed me the like media entertainment cover of this movie called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I thought was like, just that title alone freaked me out. Uh, and then if you ever Google what that cover looked like, it's, it's like a artist's painting um, of Leatherface standing with his chainsaw in the suit. And it's like the mouth is really gaping looking uh, and there's Marilyn Burns eye in the background. So it's not the, it's not the theatrical poster. It's mm-hmm. was created for that. And that one was just nightmare fuel. And so I imagined what this movie must be for so long. Uh, and then I saw the movie summer school, uh, the Carl Reiner movie. Um, and they show like the entire climactic sequence of the movie <laughs> in that film. And so I was just, I would watch that over and over again, just so I could watch what I could of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Cause I was of course not allowed to rent that one yet. <laughs> it was, uh, but then when I was in, and I, I don't remember when I saw it for the first time, but I had built it up quite a bit in my head. But by then I knew that it wasn't gory. I had heard that, it was there's only so much blood in it uh, that it's more of a suggestive uh, horror film than a gory splatter film. And, but somehow when I did see it, I remember it really profoundly disturbing me still. I, I just, just, I felt like I could smell it. I felt like I had slime on me after I watched it. Um, I felt sweaty or something, you know, that kind of a feeling. And another thing, I think the thing that I realized more than anything that disturbs me about that movie is the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those different, you know, the, the flash bulbs going off at the very beginning where you just see the little hand, little moments of the hands and parts of the corpse in the light. Uh, and it has that crazy, I, I, I think I finally figured out what, is making the sound and we can talk about that later if we want, but Mm -hmm. it's just, it's um, it just right off the top just sends this shock up your spine um, that has always really affected me. Uh, So I still find this movie to deliver for me. It is one of the few movies that continues even after I've seen it, I don't know, half a dozen times or more um, to, really give me that goopy feeling that I got when I first saw it, you know? Uh, and it was, a it was one like Nicole, I wanted to share it. So, uh, <laughs> I, um, I, I would have these Halloween movie nights and, uh, when I was in college and I sh- showed this on a double feature with psycho to a group of my friends. And, uh, so that was a good time. They still talk about it a little Excellent. bit. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's. I think we're all going to hit on some similar themes here in that the movie that I expected and the movie that I watched were two different things. Yeah, And I think mm-hmm. the movie that I watched, it's a hundred times more powerful than the one 
that I had in my head. Um, Because you hear the name Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you're thinking like Grindhouse, Gore Fest, Blood Everywhere, kind of like a Friday the 13th movie is kind of what you're expecting, but maybe more extreme. Um, I first saw this when I was 18. It was that summer in between graduating high school and going to college. Uh, My parents went to the, I think, Bermuda Uh, and had my grandmother stay with us because I could not be trusted to watch the house on my own, apparently. I think we ended up basically babysitting grandma for that, um, you know, rather than her watching us. So I had a bunch of friends over. And one of the things I remember was like a one of my best friend's dad's telling us that he saw the movie in theaters Mm. um, 20 years before. There were 19 years before that when it was playing in theaters. And him walking out like not his date walking out, but him walking out because he couldn't handle it. Like what he was seeing was too much. Um, He ran out like just throwing up, which was kind of awesome. And it wasn't that it was this like more suggested horror. And I think like after the first time I watched it, I'm like, liked it wasn't what I expected in my twenties. We ended up, This movie was something that literally every weekend for about six months, we would stay at a friend's house. We'd have like a punk show in the basement, like a potluck dinner. And then like starting at midnight would throw on either this movie, the sequel or the invisible maniac. And it ended up being something that just absolutely fell in love with this movie to the point where I had the poster above my bed in my mid twenties and a um, then ex-girlfriend who I was still very friendly with, like took it down and is like, here's a say anything poster. Like you'll get laid a lot more. (laughs) She was right. Um, But I had the theatrical, but she's like, I'm going to do you a favor here. And she, she, she was, she was right. Um, what anyway. Leatherface didn't get people going in the did in the not. Room? <laughs> yeah, it, did not. I, which I, is weird because my wife makes me wear a Jensen Eccles mask every time we make love. Anyway, moving on. Um, moving forward, um, I've had the opportunity to see this with Gunnar Hansen in the uh, delivering a Q and A after, mm. um, and he was just incredible. He just so thoughtful talking about this movie, like not what one would expect. Um, And he went so long that the theater had to ask him like, sir, it's like three in the morning and our staff wants to go home. Like he would have talked all night if he could have. It's the perfect horror movie. It is the perfect movie. Um, I think that it's one of the rare, like of the big four, it's the rare movie that doesn't relinquish any of its fury, any of its power in the decades that have followed. Um, I love John Carpenter's Halloween. And what I'm going to say next is going to sound sacrilegious, but I can see showing that movie to an audience of kids now and having them like kind of check out of it uh, and not be scared by that movie. Like I still watch that every October and I'm always drawn in by the story and Carpenter's mastery, but I'm not scared of that movie anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't feel unsettled when I watch that or Friday the 13th, even a nightmare in Elm street, which I love this movie still was unsettling to me. Like I always find something that just, it makes me feel nervous every time I watch yeah. this movie. 
It's uh, yeah. it's like a very specific energy, and it's mm-hmm. funny that like you guys all have stories of like watching it with people and stuff. Like I've never mm-hmm. gotten to see this in a theater, which I honestly like couldn't imagine because of like for me like this is like a it, this is an experience for me kind of movie like I, mm-hmm. I i'm more of like patrick bateman like doing sit-ups with this in the background mm-hmm. um like <laughs> because because like I, i've like showed this to friends they usually hate it and they're just like hey this is like really loud and grating and not fun i'm like what do you mean it's not fun this is a great time they're like no this is like uh, i'm getting well, a headache and- wait till they kill franklin then there'll be lots of fun sorry just had to <laughs> i mean there's a, that in i mean when even when franklin goes the the noises the shrill noises of the film do not stop and so it's mm-hmm. like um it, for me this is always like I, I i watch it just like with myself now like i remember um showing a friend the last time i showed him and he was he was like had this just like very discerned face look on his face the entire time and at the end, I was like, what'd you think? He's like, he's like, oh, man, that was fucking awful. I hated it. But like, it was effective. So it did its job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so yeah. I showed this one to my son. Um, and he, his comment was like, it was loud. It was loud. There was a lot of screaming in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I haven't really been able to figure out if he liked it or not. <laughs> he's he's excellent. It's so I'm. It, it's interesting to that Devon that you had some similar experiences like that. So, yeah, yeah we did it as a family movie night not too long ago, probably mm-hmm. March. And you know, my daughter has watched like the thing and all the Elm Street movies. Uh, we just watched like House of a Thousand Corpses together, and to which her reaction was like this is the greatest movie ever like five minutes into it um so she was immediately grounded um and this was like the one thing i've shown her that is like disturbed her like she was like this is freaking me out man um because it is a it it is wickedly funny at moments like to your point devon like it is a it is a very the darkest of dark comedies but it's so unrelenting and nihilistic as well that it's hard to not just just really feel feel bad for everyone in this movie. Um, all right, moving forward a little bit. Well, it's going to kind of go a little bit into the background of the movie and a little bit into the making of. And we won't, I don't think we'll spend like, I say this now, famous last words, like, too much time because I think that those stories have been recounted so often in so many places. I don't know how much new stuff there is to add there, but I think a lot of it too will come out naturally as we discuss the movie itself. So Hooper, when asked about what inspired this movie talks about Christmas shopping in a Montgomery ward and basically being surrounded by packs of, christmas and holiday shoppers everybody like getting you know get knocking into one another not paying attention and just feeling like claustrophobic and overwhelmed and he's standing near the power tool section and he eyes a rack of chainsaws on the wall and he immediately thinks what if i were to grab one of those chainsaws fire it up and just start cutting my way through the crowd 
in order to get out of this fucking place as fast as possible. And he has that thought, which I think all of us has probably have had that thought during like a really being in a really busy store and being like, I would gladly kill everybody to get out of here as fast as possible. Give me that Um, black Friday movie. (laughs) Oh yeah. I once like, I went, I did a black Friday shopping thing. So I had always worked retail. So the first time that I wasn't, I decided to like go and immediately regretted it. And I remember being in line and I'm a pretty patient person. And the woman behind me, like we're in line to buy our things. And she kept like jamming the back of her cart into me. And I think the first couple times I'm like, I'm sorry, ma'am. Like the line's pretty slow. By like the third or fourth time I turn around, like I look at her. I'm like, if you shove that into the back of my legs one more time, I will drop you in the middle of the store. It is like five in the morning and I am about to fist fight a soccer mom in Nashua, New Hampshire, because like I wanted to buy like four DVDs for $10, you know, on Friday morning after Thanksgiving. (laughs) So I get that urge, you know, to want to carve people up during that. So he has that thought and then he immediately says like the movie played out in his head. He pictured the family. He pictured like the victims, what they would be doing. And like, he basically writes this movie in his head in the middle of the shop. But I don't think you can talk about this movie without acknowledging where like the genre was at this point. Mm -hmm. And I would say three movies that this owes like a great deal of debt to would be obviously night of the living dead. Uh, 1968 George Romero's classic uh, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, which came out in 72, Brian. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And uh, the year before, you know, Texas Chainsaw comes out like Deliverance hits theaters Mm -hmm. because you're not looking at horror that is supernatural or gothic. Like you're looking at, you know, these untapped or unexplored parts of the world or just these people that are left behind and the horror of like, just maybe one day walking through a door that you were never meant to walk through and having your whole world go topsy turvy on you. I mean, it's like seeing just people from a different world that like, you're just like that they weren't used to like people got into the, the exploitation of it all just because it's like, Oh, I haven't, I'm not used to seeing Southern people portrayed in film, you know, like, because uh, it just wasn't an area or a group of people that were you know focused on in films, especially horror. So like, you know, the, the ideas and legends that come out about like, you know, the, the way that, you know, Southern people will protect their property at all cost, And, you know, they might, you know, kill you and make you into chili or barbecue. Um, you know, so like that idea is like obviously terrifying, um, even mm-hmm. though it's, you know, very much like a ridiculous, you know, generalization that people were making about, you know, Southern people at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it even extends to just what is often recalled or, or called rule horror, because Jason is kind of the same way. Like, I'm fine unless you come to my my territory, and then I'm going to cut you down. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think to what Devon was saying, like, it's really interesting to think about the impact that it had specifically on its themes 
related to how rural horror would be like continue to develop because I think you started to see a steer away from deliverance and um, those types of films that were really exploitation to something that really I think wanted to put forth a very specific kind of message and so I think that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was really one of those films along with I think not just Last House on the Left but when you pair it with uh, The Hills Have Eyes having kind of this rural area people coming in and people kind of defending their territory and their place in this land. Um, I, I think that it has a real impact and really drives a lot of themes and, and ideas that continue to be seen today. Yeah, the West Craven of it all, I probably have to comment on a little bit because that seems to be my area. Um, but uh, so... Toby Hooper claims that he never saw Last House on the Left before making Texas Chainsaw. Um, and I believe him, <laughs> but uh, there seems to be sort of this feedback loop that goes uh, between Hooper and Craven for for the rest of the 70s, um, where you have um, Craven... Uh, was a great admirer of this film. And so for Hills Have Eyes, of course, he kind of apes the story a little yeah. bit, you know, and he brings in, um, you know, Bob Burns to do the, the set design and all that stuff. And the, uh, the idea of both of those films, I, I think those two are uh, Texas Chainsaw and Hills Have Eyes are linked so powerfully because of, um, sort of this fairy tale basis that they have their their structure is stay on the path don't leave the path it's very red riding hood or hansel and gretel hansel and, you and end, gretel is what yeah, jumps to mind absolutely yeah and you end up in this place where you know there's the witch's house and um you're going in where you don't belong and you're going to get killed for it um mm-hmm. so there there's um both of those movies kind of, and this movie is actually probably more like the Sonny Bean idea that uh, Wes Craven was looking into uh, for Hills Have Eyes than even the Hills Have Eyes is. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that they have those parallels. And um, so they, I, I love sort of that feedback loop that Hooper and Craven are in for a little bit there in the seventies and they kind of play off each other's, ideas a little bit and, it, and mm-hmm. in different ways, but effective ways. So. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see this and the Hills have eyes make a great one, two punch. Like it would make oh, a yeah. great back to back where I would say the Hills have eyes. Definitely. It would be a bit more of a classic exploitation movie. Um, mm-hmm. Given that you're getting more into mutinism and, things like that, where this is for all intents and purposes is played very straight in terms of uh, it's just very human killers that you're Mm -hmm. seeing here. And that is kind of where horror, you know, it's of course the year before this, like the exorcist hits like a neutron bomb uh, in in cinemas and 
you know, is very much like supernatural horror, but you are seeing this shift away, even with the exorcist, like it's taking place, like in Georgetown, it's playing play taking, but it's in a very like urban, very suave setting. Like we're no longer in some dank Eastern European castle. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have Dracula changing into a bat and flying through the window or a mad scientist stitching together body parts. Like now what you're doing is like these, you know, these very rural people are c- cutting up and carving up and, and eating people and using the remains to make like weird art and furniture. Um, something that's much different now. And when we talk about like the cannibalism aspect or wearing like a person's like face as a mask, like the obvious go to that everyone talks about is Ed Gein and Mm -hmm. Hooper has said that he was inspired by stories that his grandmother told him of Ed Gein, Gein obviously being a Wisconsinite who was very attached to his mother. And there are only two murders that are attributed to Ed Gein, although there is some question on some others, like specifically his older brother. Uh, there's always been questions like he died in a hunting accident. The two of them were on. Um, but, you know, Hooper got basically not even secondhand, but like fourthhand stories. And I think the Gein legend had been blown up to such a degree that what very much like the opening crawl of this movie. Oh, what you're about to see really happen. Like it takes on a legend of its own at this point. With Ed Gein, you also have, I think the grave robbing aspect is Mm -hmm. a big element, uh, you know, making lampshades out of skin and those kinds of things. Um, Then of course, psycho is probably a little bit more true. The, to uh, the inspiration of Ed Gein, even though it's very different from the real story as well. But I mean, mother issues and all that <laughs> come more into play mm-hmm. into that one. Uh, whereas here it's, uh... that's something I'm, I'm not really sure. The, the family dynamic is interesting in this movie and it's sort mm-hmm. of a, on a tangent from this. So yeah. um, I'm sure we'll get into that later. Well, I think the, thing that I always go back to is why is Leatherface wearing a mask? So when you get into the remake, there's a scene plus maybe a scene and a half that kind of goes into his background um, and having a deformity that he wanted to cover up. But this is kind of canon in the film uh, from the original kind of concept. So Uh, It's really interesting to me that you have, um, you know, a character that unlike a dean that, you know, could run a business and be around folks and not wear a mask and raise no suspicions, um, have no additional eyes on him, uh, would be the source of a story for someone that was like, I'm, you know, there's something wrong with me and I need to hide my face and to hide my face is to literally put other faces upon my face. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of see it in like that way, you know, and then there's also like kind of the, the resourcefulness of, um, of the, you know, like the common mentality of the family that like, you know, it's like they, whenever they kill somebody, it's like, they're, you know, getting meat for their food. They're getting bones for their furniture. 
uh, hey, we can't let the skin go to waste too. So uh, Leatherface here, go ahead and wear it too, you know? So um, it's like them literally like kind of taking like every piece of everything. And, and, And with the grave robbing too is interesting because like, you know, on one hand, um the the cook like CEO mentioned like oh well you know when people when you go on people's property like you kind of have it coming to you and stuff but they don't have the issue with that when it's going into you know um you know someone's someone's body uh I guess because maybe since they're dead like oh they don't have that right to the privacy anymore so it's kind of funny that like you know he makes it a point like multiple times of being like oh no you guys kind of brought this on yourself like but at the same time, um, you know, they have their own, you know, backwards twist. Well, the dead obsession. can't fight back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the cook gets pretty pissed off at the hitchhiker for, yes, you know, being caught at the graveyard again or being around the graveyard uh, mm-hmm. towards the end of the movie. For me with Leatherface, I, in this film, um, it seems I, I've always thought that Leatherface chose the different masks to take on different personas. identities. Yeah, mm-hmm. like personas. So because he wears three in this mm-hmm. one, he wears the the killer mask. He wears the preparer's mask, which is like an old woman, and then he wears uh, the third one at the dinner party with the makeup the and everything. Pretty lady mask, I think, is yeah. how it's been described. Yeah, right. And it's not a, a sexual thing. It no, just, it's not. It, it's it's very much wanting to, you know, play the part of the moment, you know, yeah. that's appropriate for this setting kind of thing. That's the way I've seen it. Um, yeah, I definitely want to dive more into the meanings or the roles of each mask and we get mm-hmm. to Leatherface. That's something sure. that I think we'll spend a good amount of time on because I think that kind of goes away in the later movies and it's yeah, unfortunate. It mm-hmm. um, it's one of the things that, it really makes the film work here because it's, it's disturbing, mm-hmm. but you can also understand the logic behind it. Like yeah. it's not one of those things you're like, it's freaky for the sake of it. It's like, Oh, there's a real thought process going on here and it makes sense, but it's also wickedly disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that doing some research for this and it didn't come up when Hooper and Henkel, Kim Henkel, the co-writer of the movie, first wrote the script. Like it's something that more or less came together during the back half of the movie and even more so in editing. So much so that the opening scrawl that you see, as well as the um, photo sound effect, the camera sound effect and the quick like quarter second shots of the bodies like that was envisioned like after principal photography had wrapped like they actually decided this is the entry we're going to go with because it's going to hit people right in the stomach but there was a case that broke in the houston texas area right in august of 1973 as they're filming this movie called the Candyman killer cases case and it was uh Dean Arnold Coral, who was a Texas-based serial killer that over the course of a few years in the late 60s, early 70s, abducted 28 young men um, and basically, um, excuse me, basically like tortured them, sexually assaulted them, and then killed them. 
And he did this with the assistance of two teenage boys, like David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. So the two boys would kind of lure the victims in, and then Coral would have like non basically assault them, hold them there, rape them, and then kill them, and then bury the bodies throughout the area. Hmm. So what ended up happening in August of August eighth, nineteen seventy three. Um, Henley actually brought two young women to the house, which was considered a big no-no. So at which point Coral um, abducted him along with the two women. And then Henley was able to talk himself out of his bondage by saying, you can have one girl, I'll have the other, and then we'll do them. But what he did instead, once he was free, was he pulled a gun on Coral. Coral said, like, you don't have the balls to shoot me, essentially. Henley then shot him in the forehead. However, the bullet did not go all the way through the forehead. And Coral was still alive, (laughs) at which point he started to kind of lurch through the home. Henley shot him three more times in the back. And you can see, like, it's super disturbing. Like, there's a photo of Coral's death photo, like, buck naked, slumped over on the ground um it's fucking weird man um henley then decides like we are going to call the police and i am going to tell them what i did so the cops come and they try to read him his rights and he's like i don't care who knows it i have to get this off my chest and he starts leading them to the murder sites and telling them all of what they did and they're digging up all of these bodies And he says, I did the crimes. I'm going to stand up and take it like a man. And it's that statement that captures like Henkel and Hooper's peak. They're basically saying like this idea that this boy is guilty of these like horrific, like almost unfathomable acts of violence. But he has a code. He's like, well, I'm caught now. I did these things. I have to pay for what I've done. It's just this weird moral schizophrenia which we'll talk more about when we talk about the family so while the sawyer family itself like it's not based on coral and his accomplices when the news of this crime breaks across texas all of a sudden like the characters start to shift a little bit and they start to get in the editing room they start to take on different meanings overall um and you see that code take shape in very specific ways especially when you're dealing, I think, with the cook. Um, you know, I think Henkel has said, like, there's no way, uh, or Hansen said, there's no way that Coral was the basis for the family because the day the crime broke, I was filming the meat hook scene, meaning we were already about halfway through shooting. But I think this movie was rewritten on the fly a lot. A lot of it comes together in editing. And this idea of these, like, killers that have this weird morality that includes accountability kind of like entered entered their thinking as they're stitching Mm -hmm. together the back half of the movie i mean and it works out in a way i've always found it more effective the films that uh kind of approach it with the more of um inspired by true events versus like based on a true story like Mm -hmm. type of thing because then when you say like based on a true story and like in a specific one at that then it's like you already have like your expectations to attach to it and like in 
and of the story and like uh, the way you're going to view it versus when it kind of comes together a little bit more like somewhat organically, like, you know, as news is kind of breaking out and they just like kind of rewrite and keep kind of keep adding uh, more ingredients to the stew. Uh, it kind of gives it this uh, ambiguity that makes it um, a lot more unsettling um, because it really just sounds like, it could be uh, anything like, oh, is it the story that happened in Texas if you're in the South? Like, and then mm-hmm. you kind of feel that. Or mm-hmm. is it like one of the stories that happened in California if you're out in the Bay? And then like, boom, like, you know, there's a story in that area that, you know, you can kind of see the inspiration. And so even though it is very much like, you know, based in Texas and uh, has a Southern, you know, sensibility to it, it also still has a, um, you know, and an anywhere kind of fear to it as well. Well, I think that, especially now, there's always that, uh, I don't know, kind of gimmick to be, like, based on a true story. And then you find out that it was based on something that was so kind of tangentially associated. I mean, obviously, thinking about the strangers as an example here. And I think what makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre so impactful in kind of the based on a real story, I mean, in going from the very opening moments of the film, is that you do have this, I think, really raw kind of understanding of how it is connected to things that were happening, um, people that were in the news. Um, so I really appreciate the fact that even if it didn't explicitly state, you know, based on this case, I think it very well, I think, fit itself into the realm of, this is kind of based on some things that we're hearing, we know, kind of in the popular zeitgeist. And it was also kind of an exploitation uh, trope, (laughs) even by then, to, to put on the front of your movie, hey, this is based on a real story, even though, even if it isn't, you know, uh, and that obviously gets used a lot. I mean, when the Coen brothers used it on Fargo, people on the set were saying, hey, you know, tell me about the real case. And they got what? Uh, oh, no, we made it up. And there are still people, you know, go around and say, oh, you know, Fargo's based on a true story. Nope. No, it's not. They made it up. <laughs> it, it's something that Hanson talks a lot about in his book, Chainsaw Confidential, which is a Great fantastic book. read. Great title. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, also, I uh, I listened to it on audiobook, so, and, and he reads it, and it's mm-hmm. so great to hear yeah. him tell those stories, yeah. Yeah. It's, he, he, in the back end of the book, he talks about, in the years after this movie came out, how many fans would come up to him and say, oh, I knew the real Leatherface. Like he's an inmate in this Texas correctional facility. Or one woman came up to him and was like, how dare you, sir? And what do you mean? Like, how dare you exploit the victims of this crime? Like I knew them. And he's like, ma'am, it's a movie. Like it was written. It's a work of fiction. And people would get Mm -hmm. upset and insist that, no, they knew the real Leatherface or they knew the actual case mm-hmm. this movie is based on. Um, and it's the power of this. And I think yeah. a large part is too is because of the way that Daniel Pearl shot this movie. It yeah. looks like a documentary. Like it looks like you are 
following this crew around. Uh, it's almost like found footage before there was found footage. Uh, that's how well this movie is shot. And Hooper had a bit of a background in documentary filmmaking. Like his first real large commercial gig was he spent six months touring with the folk band Peter, Paul and Mary for a documentary on uh, for PBS on Mm -hmm. the band. So there's obviously he had some background there. And I think that is, it lends a lot of power to this, this movie. It's not a hyper stylized movie, like say Halloween is, um, so, I mean, you see other things that it's, it's, this movie is a massive stew, you know, Hooper has talked about it being like a comedy and a political movie. It's like a political allegory because it, it's shot in the early to mid seventies at a time of like tremendous disruption in the country. We are less than five years removed from the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Kennedy and Malcolm X, like three assassinations that just rocked, just rocked the country. Um, the atrocities of Vietnam had been brought to the American public in living color across like the evening news. Like for the first time, American families are seeing firsthand in almost real time what the effects of war are. And we're wrestling with this not only unpopular war, but an unpopular war that we lost. Um, Richard Nixon see, uh, is this as they're filming this movie, like Watergate is going full swing. Mm-hmm. So it, it hasn't quite exploded onto the consciousness yet, but there is this building mistrust and paranoia in government institutions. Um, and we're only five years removed from the Manson family and the, Tate LeBianca murders as well. So like it is just this time in our history where you see a lot of forward progress and you start to see the resistance to that progress as well. And the old guard of the new guard clashing. And it's also the, the start of the new Hollywood as well. Yeah. You're seeing, Bonnie and Clyde, you're seeing um sorry, Mean Streets from Scorsese hit. Mm-hmm. So there's a new way of making movies and there's a new morality of film. Easy Rider is is less than what, four years old at this point. Yep. You're getting all of that is kind of going into the stew as they're making this. And and I love how they like kind of took all that and distilled it down like pretty simply, you know, with uh, just that conversation of uh, when they're in the van with the hitchhiker and just the simple conversation about uh, the differences and uh, what's the most effective way to kill the cows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's ta- telling all grandpa's old war-, war stories about how good he was at killing the cows and how the gun doesn't actually work and all these things, you know, and like basically, you know, having that conversation of being like, no, you know, like the, the old ways are still what's best. And like, you know, we need to stick to uh, the, the try and true methods, you know, mm-hmm. instead of um, wanting to explore, you know, new methods of uh, killing, but, yeah. uh, j- but kind of taking all that and then just like kind of putting it in the context of, you know, like, you know, this family that is very prideful of, you know, like, oh, like our entire family has worked in this, um, in the butcher business and, uh, you know, and uh, uh, even with the, the sneaky line of, you know, our family's always been in meat, 
and mm-hmm. uh which mm-hmm. i which i love so um but like kind of distilling all of that information to like a, a very simple uh way is uh, so impressive of the film i think prideful is the perfect description of how they feel and i can't wait to kind of dig into that more a bit later yeah that is perfect well and i would push back against prideful and say that they feel put upon because i think there's also this theme that these are individuals this is a community that has been cast aside and when they see individuals that come into their community that haven't experienced um what they have there's kind of a righteous indignation Mm -hmm. and so you see that with the hitchhiker like they see him from a distance and they're like oh of course we want to pick him up why wouldn't we but then when they get closer and they see that oh he has this birthmark on his face he looks weird let's just keep moving Mm -hmm. um I think it really speaks to how I think Toby Hooper really wanted to make a statement about how there are specific kind of, especially connected with Vietnam, these returning veterans that are feeling like we have nothing. We're not welcomed into the society. We have no supports, no no access to the things that we need to be kind of integrated back into society. And so when they're talking about the shutdown of the plant, it's very much, I think, kind of in that same vein, at Mm -hmm. least to me. Yeah. Agree. I agree with all of that. Absolutely. And I, when I say, when I say I, I agree with prideful, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like they obviously like, you know, how they regarded grandpa, like it had been their livelihood, um, and there's like nothing wrong with taking pride when you do good work. I'm thinking, and to your point, like, and we, when we dive into the movie, this is very much a movie about late stage capitalism and economic devastation way before we were talking about those things. So this is like NAFTA before there was NAFTA. There was this movie, I think would be the way I might describe it. Um, and I would probably do so clumsily. Another thing I think that is being dealt with uh, politically is uh, you have sort of filmmakers of this era in horror, uh, Wes Craven, Ramiro, Bob Clark in a couple of his early films, and Mm -hmm. Toby Hooper, who had been sort of tangentially or deeply involved in the peace movement, the hippie movement. And just being kind of disillusioned by the fact that it didn't work. The 60s, quote unquote, didn't work, you know, and it's like we're being faced with this sort of harsh, brutal reality, you know, so you have these hippies colliding with this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this element uh, that's out there in the world that will just eat them alive. And I I think that is true in Last House on the Left. I think that's true in uh, Night of the Living Dead. I think that's true in uh, Death Dream and those kinds of movies, you know, that I think they're just like, and these were people who were part of this movement who were just kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, and I know how you feel about hippies, Mike. So, uh. yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, this is a happy ending. As far yeah. as, 
so, so but, but you know what I'm saying there? I mean, just, just sort of this lack, of, this feeling of absolute disillusionment with, um, with the results of all this. I mean, we, we got the end of the Vietnam war runs right into Watergate runs right mm-hmm. into all of these other th- things that just seem just as bad or worse than, <laughs> than what was going on in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, I mean, I remember a quote where with George Ramirez just saying, and we were just so upset because the sixties didn't work. Yep. You He's know, not wrong. Yeah. He's you see, I mean, like the yeah. the Tate LeBianca murders exactly. are basically the the point where the sixties end, mm-hmm. and you're hit with this really harsh reality. And that yep. I think it, it it's hard you could, to you could see that in the ends endings of uh, Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider. Yeah, well, this you the, know. The back half of this movie is basically the last minute of Easy Rider stretched mm-hmm. out for 40 minutes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, where the old guard or the these rural Southerners like see the hippies and are like, got to get rid of them. And, and instead of taking yep. place over like two minutes at the like at the end of Easy Rider, like it yep. is the whole point of the, the last act of the movie. Um yep. It's hard now because we're in a culture where like our attention spans are so short, where there's such a quick news cycle. It's kind of hard to imagine something like the Manson family and how long they had like a hold on kind of like pop culture and and basically the collective imaginations of persons because, you know, there wasn't the Internet or to distract persons. There wasn't. 500 stations and a million streaming options. It was like you had three networks and some UHF and you had your local paper and the Saturday evening post and maybe time in life magazine. And Mm -hmm. this is what dominated the cultural airwaves for so long. And I would say that like it very much hangs over so many movies of, of this era. Yeah. So, all right. So we're going to, I mean, I think, like I said, all of those things I think are going to go, we'll be diving deeper into as we discuss the movie really briefly on the making of it and a little bit of, of Hooper's background. And I kind of want to end this with like talking this section with talking a little bit about how we regard Toby Hooper as a filmmaker mm. overall. And let's see how controversial I can get. Um, but in the late sixties, like Hooper, uh, is part of like the motion picture production and film house of Austin. And it's a place where like his kind of like artsy way of setting up shots meets, you know, a blend of commercialism and pragmatism where it's like, Hey, it's great. You have this talent. We're going to go do these things like commercials that um, keep the lights on and get everybody paid, which Hooper was like, why would we want to do that? We need to do art. And they're like, Nope, dude, we actually need to pay rent too. Um, he works on the documentary about Peter, Paul and Mary, uh, but he also works on a feature film. He directs his first feature called eggshells, and it is about a hippie commune that starts to fall under the influence of some sort of ethereal spirit that lives in the basement of their commune home. Um, it has been described by people that worked on it as dated the moment we stopped filming it. Um, and I think it's screened one time for one person. It's on YouTube now. Like you can actually find it on YouTube. I tried to watch it 
moving on. Um, <laughs> no comment. So uh, he, his work on Windspitter, where he actually acts, like it nets him a pretty sizable chunk of Texas Chainsaw Massacre's cast and crew. It's where he meets co-writer Kim Henkel. It's where he meets Jim Seidel, who plays the cook. Uh, his editor, Sally Richardson, and production manager, uh, Ron Bosman. All of them meet on this movie, Windspitter. So you start to see the seeds of who he's going to work with. Uh, Hanson says he was cast because Hooper meets him and says, oh, his dude can fill the doorway. Mm-hmm. And Hanson says, you know, he's asked by Hooper, like, are you crazy? He's like, no, not particularly. He's like, well, are you an angry or violent person? He's like, nope, not like Hanson is very gentle painter and poet. He's like, well, can you can you play that? He's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And he gets the role again, much like Johnny Bravo uh, or Greg Brady, like he fits the suit. Um, <laughs> Hanson. He says his mother was the clinical director at like a home for, I believe, adults with what we would now say developmental disabilities. And Hanson goes to work there. He basically goes to um, study them. And he talks about a lot of the mannerisms he picked up for his walk, his body language was um, from kind of like volunteering at this place. But, you know, I think obviously now that is something we would frown upon. And Nicole, I know it's something that you've spoken extensively about on your show. Would you mind kind of discussing, you know, why? Because I think, you know, at first blush, some people would think, well, why is that a bad idea? And I think you could speak more eloquently than I on this. So, No, I think that it's a bad thing for so many reasons, but I think in my mind, it's really what is one of the things I consistently go back to when I watch this movie is that this is pre ADA. This is pre kind of like any kind of real uh, disability being recognized within kind of all of the civil rights and um, kind of different movements that were happening at that time. Um, So you have someone that is like, well, I want to inform my performance by going and observing these folks. And one of the things that I always try to hit on in talking about any film is that disability isn't a monolith. Um, You can't there's no one way that disability presents, um, be it uh, physical disability and intellectual or developmental disability, a mental health challenge. Um, none of them present in one completely static way. And to kind of put that upon one performance, one kind of character, I think is really not great Mm -hmm. now again i (laughs) you have to kind of consider the time when this is happening and be like i completely understand why this was the thought process behind it and why someone would think like absolutely this is what i have access to and this is how i want to inform 
my performance. But now I think, no, you would never do anything mm-hmm. akin to that. There wouldn't be, I think, a situation, a, a school, a home like that, that you could do that with. No, no there would be, it, I think the number one issue I have with it is your, you would need to get consent in order to do something like this. And you're probably getting consent from persons that can't give it knowing what they're actually signing up for. If that Absolutely. Makes sense. Because they can't like, <sighs> I mean, there's just so many issues of like, yes, consent, you know, you could be told, I remember, um, like having a disability summer camp and being told like, oh, well, there, there will be some folks from this college that are going to come and film certain segments of the mm-hmm. camp. And us being like, okay, well, first off, what segments? What, like, do we need to get, you know, signed consent forms from mm-hmm. folks that are coming in? Like, what, what does this entail? And this was, like... A long time, I say a long time ago, not that long, because I'm not, I don't know. It's a different time, but it's just, I feel really, I don't know. It's, part of me is like, I understand that this is the inclination that you Mm -hmm. have. And I appreciate the thought that is there. That is like, I want to be able to understand what this looks like but there's also like i want to observe versus i want to actually have conversations with someone i want to actually understand what their day-to-day life looks like Mm -hmm. um and that doesn't seem to be happening it's just like oh well i want to you know move my body like this because i saw someone do this that that's not what disability is I do think that Hansen's portrayal of Leatherface, there's an empathy where he's not, and we'll talk, I think, a lot more about this shortly. He's not just a villain. I think there's a real character that's there that the other movies lack. Mm-hmm. I think by the time you get, especially to the third, by the time you get to the third movie, he's pretty much like a boilerplate, boilerplate slasher villain. Mm. And a lot of the characteristics that, that that Hansen that I think made him a more sympathetic character are gone. And I could see Hansen coming to this from like a a good place, but poor execution, if that makes sense. I mean, it well, wasn't think- it wasn't on Hansen to do that, you know. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I think it's on Han I mean, it's on Hansen that I think it's great that you know he did what he felt that he could do to, you know, bring that versus, you know, because if Hooper uh, actually wanted to, you know, tell a story and like more uh, representation of, you know, disability and Leatherface, he would have been the one to, you know, Mm -hmm. take that extra step and like do the effort to like, you know, Mm -hmm. actually get more uh, information from the interactions rather than that. But so I can see Hanson as like you were saying, like as Hart was definitely like in a good place to be like, okay, well, if it's not given to me in this way, then, you know, this is what I can do to take it upon myself to do a little yeah. bit better, I suppose. 100%. I, yeah, I think that it's really both 
not just the person that is, um, you know, doing the performance, but also the filmmakers to provide good, some kind of guidance. Mm-hmm. And that guidance has completely changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I always go back to like, this is a pre-ADA film. Mm-hmm. This is before disability was really recognized as something mm-hmm. that needed a certain amount of attention. So you have to give so much grace um, to to that. And I think, you know, hearing... Uh, like Gunnar talk about his experiences, I think are really powerful and important. But I think it's also something that when we talk about like the impact of the film, um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately lessons may or may not have been learned as we continue to go on and as it impacts certain portrayals in rural horror. Yep. So... I would agree agree with all of that. And to your point about, you know, it's upon the director to kind of guide the actor at that point. Let's talk about Toby Hooper because Mm -hmm. he is not that director that is going (laughs) to kind of like guide his actors. Like he is very much like, this is the shot I want. And it's almost like the actors, this is, look, this is a notoriously difficult film to shoot. And I think like his performer, I think everybody walked off of this set like psychologically and emotionally and physically damaged from creating this movie. Like we'll talk about why you cannot make movies like this anymore shortly. Um, But Hooper just kind of gets lost in his own like, let's get the shot that we want. What do we think? What are our overall impressions of Hooper as a director? Who wants to tackle that first? I mean, I haven't seen too many of his films, so I don't have as much to say about him. Um, but I mean, from the ones that I have seen, I mean, none of them are on the level of this one. And, you know, as far as the way it being made, it's like, you know, I I would hope that, you know, at least the cast can like kind of look back and uh, more in the hindsight of it all be like, you know, uh, was it was it worth it to, you know, uh, some of the experiences to like to uh, put this like kind of forward uh, but um, but like in the in the moment of it it's like yeah that's it's there's the difference between like you know like guiding the actress or, uh, to get the reactions they want or like in in collaboration if it was like a hey can you do this to get me there versus uh no I'm just gonna go ahead and rig up props and I'm gonna kind of do uh, my own thing uh, in that way, um, is just like, kind of not, not, um, you know, doesn't work the best. So as far as, uh, my impression of Hooper as a director, uh, again, I think, um, it, the movie kind of happened in spite of him, uh, versus, um, you know, the, maybe him being the one that kind of mm-hmm. pulled the magic out of it. I think it's always interesting to think about, I always go back to the fact that he had, you know, said, I want this film to be PG. Um, And then he's also made Poltergeist, which is very much kinder horror. You know, the horror that as a kid, we are able to kind of 
uh, associate ourselves with. And so I think that he has such, I think that there's a, a thoughtfulness and I think a, a style that comes through, but I think at a certain point he kind of gets absorbed by other actors that are part of the filmmaking process. And so you kind of lose any kind of vision that he may have had that was very specifically stylistic. But I always go back to the fact that he was like, I want to make this PG and have very low gore. And then the other film that, you know, a mass audience will associate him with, which is Poltergeist, is also like low gore, but I think is also hitting on so many similar themes of family and generational kind of trauma and he, but yet we're so quick to decry his like input into Poltergeist. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Hooper, I got to say uh, the ones that I've seen, I've really liked though. Um, this one, I, I, I like a lot, of course, <laughs> I think this is the top of the heap. Um, without question, but Salem's Lot is one of the, maybe the best TV horror films that I've ever seen. I think it's really effective and scary. Um, I think I, I liked eating alive. It's a bonkers movie, but I enjoyed that one. I think the fun house is really terrific. And I think it shows a lot of, of promise for what he would have been able to do. Hadn't if his career hadn't been hum hamstrung by the poltergeist controversy. Um, because I really do think that his career was effectively ended by the rumors that Steven Spielberg actually mm. directed the movie. Um, he made a lot of movies for Canon and things like that, uh, that sort of limped along. But uh, for me, that early stage up until poltergeist shows the trajectory that he could have gone on. And I think it would have been um, one of, uh, I think it would have been a really fantastic career. I know there are a lot of people, I mean, they love Toby Hooper and I'm like, awesome. Um, I, I don't really get the late era <laughs> to be honest, mm -hmm. the post poltergeist era, but the, the pre poltergeist era, I think is, is just some of, it's really interesting. Uh, I don't think eating alive totally hits for me, but the others I think are really, really strong movies. Yeah. I, I would say the best version of Toby Hooper, he could have been Wes Craven. Yeah, I think so. Best. Yeah. But I think what separates the, the two of them is Wes Craven could not only create these visceral, experiences in horror but he was also like interested in the philosophy or psychology mm -hmm. behind those movies as well yeah and he also had his like cast and crew at the forefront like he knew how to speak to his mm -hmm. characters and collaborate with them in mm -hmm. a such a way people loved to yeah. work with Wes Craven. Exactly. No one says a bad word about him. Yeah. Even yeah. people he fired. I mean, he's just <laughs> like, if just everyone, I've never heard uh, anyone who worked with him mm -hmm. say anything negative about him. 
Mm-hmm. He had a he had more thoughtfulness behind mm-hmm. what he was mm-hmm. doing. I think is the ultimate difference. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because again, I can't deny you know being impressed by you know some of the things that Hooper pulls off in this film um, on a on a visual level, on a technical level, with the mm-hmm. the sound editing and and um, mm-hmm. you know the the levels of intensity that he can show through the screen. But then, like when you do hear about the way that he went about doing it then it's Mm -hmm. like it it doesn't uh have that thoughtfulness behind it whenever you're watching it so it's like you you kind of you know you you feel it whenever you're like watching it you know but it's like uh, but the film isn't something it's like whenever i'm watching it i'm i'm in the experience like 100 i love it but Mm -hmm. then it's like afterwards i'm not thinking about it though because it didn't have that same like thoughtfulness like behind it the same uh, weight behind it i think think that it's important to under like with thoughtfulness i think that Toby had thoughtfulness in terms of themes and ideas that he wanted to explore in his films. I think that the thoughtfulness kind of breaks apart when dealing with how all of it comes together and how Mm -hmm. folks were treated on set. Like you would never hear a story um, about someone on the set of a Wes Craven film akin to the horrific tales of people that were on set for Texas Chainsaw Massacre Mm -hmm. and just the physical duress that they were under and just the uncomfortableness. Like Wes was very, I think, attuned to his actors, their comfortability Mm -hmm. and how they were collaborating. I think that Toby, especially at that point, was really not, I think, kind of clicked into that space. So, yes, I think thoughtfulness, I think there's a lot of thoughtfulness to Toby's films in terms of themes and ideas that he wants to mm-hmm. explore. Not thoughtfulness in right. how in it all comes together yeah. and the folks are treated. Because Wes, I think, especially since, unfortunately, Wes's passing, you hear so many people passionately mm-hmm. speak about how kindly and warmly and comfortable um those sets were treated and i think he learned his lesson on last house on the left because last house was his most uncomfortable set Mm -hmm. uh and he never made a movie like that again you know um because even though he did his best to even during the really graphic sections of that movie to make sure that there was some sort of release you know after those kinds of things uh in a positive sense um like uh, there was he tells he told the story about how you know after the they were you know the intestine falls out scene um that he's just like i'm not going to do this again Mm-hmm. essentially because it was just they all felt just like what have we done kind of feeling and whereas i think hooper i don't know if he thought on those kinds of levels um when he was working with actors i mean when you have real blood being drawn from one of your actors and it's like oh it's in the movie because we got the Mm -hmm. shot um that's that's tough i mean for me to really get on board with um as far as an ethical Mm -hmm. (laughs) approach to filmmaking you know i would i would say that and this is, might be a bit of a stretch, but Hooper 
is a lot like George Lucas as a director in that like there is a very sure. specific mm-hmm. vision that is mind and he's able to capture it in, in particular. He captured it here like no one can say there's like no style or vision right. in this movie like it is very obviously there. Um, however, like being able to convey that to his performers is another story altogether. And I think if like if this movie was done under more let's say kind of like climate controlled conditions sure. where it wasn't 120 degree oppressive Texas heat in the summer and you didn't have like the stink from, you know, rotting food and rotting bones on set. If you didn't have all of that and you didn't have basically no money to get these things done if it was just like a standard film set, I don't know how much of his vision would come across. Like the environment so much factors into this movie to benefit Hooper and his vision. And I I love what you said, Brian, about like poltergeist killing his career, because what you have in poltergeist is yes, like he set up the shots. He directed that movie, but what would happen is like, it would take Spielberg to, take what Hooper wanted and then bring that to the performers and then say, Hey, we need this from you. This is what we're looking for here. And he would translate all that and then look at Hooper and go like, right. And Hooper would be like, yeah, pretty much. All right. Roll camera where it's opposed to like Hooper having that interaction. So, um, you know, fun house is another like super fun early 80s slasher movie. Salem's Lot is the first movie that ever like it it made me a horror fan like the jailhouse Mm -hmm. scene Mm -hmm. saw that when I was far too young and I hauled ass upstairs when I saw that and hid under my bed crying at like age five years old. Um, So I think like he was able to create these moments of real horror, but nothing he could ever like come close to replicating again like he could like this movie is almost like a happy accident how well it came together um so talking about before we get into the movie proper like some of the duress that persons went under to make this movie like hansen talks about finishing this and then not being able to like move for a few days like going home not even realizing that his roommate had moved in his girlfriend at that point until like a month later because he was just so psychologically drained. Um, Marilyn wow. Burns and Terry Mc, uh, Terry McMinn, who plays Pam, talk about like an almost like perverse pleasure that Hooper has in watching them physically suffer. Like he would be off camera laughing at like what they're going through. Um, just cackling, you know, like, look at this and like, we're going to use it. Um, uh, McMinn talks about the moment where she stumbles into the, uh, room for the first time with all the bones in it. And she kept tripping on this bucket. Like it was in, she was supposed to, nobody thought to like, Hey, let's tape a little piece of sponge to where her leg is going to hit. So she cuts the shit out of her leg every single time that she has to hit that bucket. Um, Marilyn Burns, like she has a stunt double drop, drop through the sugar glass, two feet onto a mattress, but they drop burns from like the lip of the house, 10 feet up onto the ground. Uh, and then Hooper is throwing chunks of hardened sugar glass at her. Cause it had hardened overnight. She like 
destroys her knees doing 17 takes bursting into the uh, barbecue shack like things that you just you you wouldn't do now she actually has to like even the props like the fake props they would use like she's like oh we didn't use a real broom to beat her with like we used a rubber one i just didn't realize there was a metal rod inside the rubber so that it would stay straight uh, and that's what side was hitting her with and eventually she screams herself hoarse she's so br- she's giving everything she can um basically she just is like i can't do this like after two days she needs two days off from filming after that scene because she's so beat up Jeez. and she in Hanson in his book talks about um burns saying like he never said we did a good job it was just like oh, all right wow. print it and then just move on like never any like consideration and it was just like and i don't think he was doing it maliciously i think this is like a hyper focused person like i got the shot let's go to the next one but you need your movie is not just a sum of shots like your movie is like as a director it's your job to take care of everybody um he tells daniel pearl i'm not going to give you a cinematographer i'm only going to give you the cinematographer credit not director of photography because i had to look through the lens before every shot and pearl was like dude that's your job you're the director of course you would um just weird unreal yeah i mean i think that kind of abruptness that toby was utilizing was really kind of a cruel to be kind Mm. measure like understanding what this film shoot the impact that it could have on folks and wanting to kind of keep things moving um you know, unfortunately, yeah, it's, you don't have time to, um, you know, always check in and do the things that we now know are really important. It's more like, all right, well, good job, or, you know, not even good job, just like, all right, well, we're moving on, meaning like, you've got something I can now use, mm-hmm. and I'm going to move on because I know that you can't do it anymore. So... Um, again, I think it's really being cognizant of kind of the constraints and the time that they were working in, because I think, yeah, like by today's standards, it's absolutely atrocious. You would never want to put someone through any kind of physical duress like that. But he, I think, was trying to navigate a situation where it was like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I want to do it as infrequently as possible. So good job. Let's move on to a scene where I don't have to like smack you on the face. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, you know, low budget filmmaking, especially at that time, is just a different animal than it is, yeah. you know, in bigger budgets or now um, it's, you th- yeah, there are, there, I mean, even you think about really, horrible film shoots in history uh, you've got jaws and you've got apocalypse now and uh, you know not all of those are small budget movies you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but so this is just like you know uh i mean compared but to, it really is a different animal i mean compared to some an experience though like um when you hear stories of um uh, sam raimi and the evil dead 
sure like that was like a a you know it was definitely a hellish production and people were kind of putting themselves through things but they also had the um you know camaraderie of you know sam raimi was in the trenches with them Mm -hmm. doing these Mm -hmm. kind of things like you know we don't hear any of the stories from texas chainsaw massacre of like oh what the things that hooper was putting himself through it's like no we kind of hear more of you know what he was putting the cast and crew through and like him kind of cackling about it and it's like and i could totally see like getting that enjoyment like once you see it on film and being like aha like look at this uh you know this like madness that i created but versus rather than just like laughing at like the oh this is just happening right now as and i'm happening to get it on camera you know so um it, it so it's like because as a as a creator like i totally get like a you know kind of getting in that hyper focused mentality and they even said that about like sam raimi on the evil dead they said it was like he was uh like in a like under a in a trance in a way that he was just like so like zoned into it but again like this is him like doing all the shooting with everybody doing the camera stuff and then also like you know and then forcing himself to edit for 10 hours a night afterwards Mm -hmm. and like not sleeping you know so uh when when you kind of have that you know when you build that camaraderie a little bit more than and the actors are willing to then go to those places for you is one thing rather than just like kind of putting them in those places uh whether they want to be or not like i mean poor marilyn burns like i remember after the dinner scene i was like thinking about just her like vocal cords Mm -hmm. i was like her like vocal cords just had to have been just like on fire afterwards just shredded just shredded oh man it is interesting though that after all that marilyn burns did toby hooper's next movie too she she's in eaten alive um Mm -hmm. so i i don't know what kind of relationship they had um you know because you hear about like sam raimi and bruce campbell bruce campbell went through the ringer for and sam raimi would be laughing about it Mm -hmm. uh but they were very close friends they're childhood buddies yeah so so school torturing each other was just kind of part Mm -hmm. of the game with them (laughs) whereas with marilyn burns and toby hooper i I don't know uh what exactly they had experienced before or after uh this the making of this Mm -hmm. movie so it's uh but it is interesting that she did disagree to do it again (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. with with uh uh eaten alive a few years later and Nicole, I see your note here likening Hooper to Kubrick in this regard, mm. if you want to espouse. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the pieces that he put uh, Shelley Duvall through for The Shining, like, and I say pieces as, like, the nicest way to say mm-hmm. abuse um, for that performance, um, like... Again, there wasn't the kind of uh, supervision and kind of thought put into how folks are treated on sets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you want to do something quick and dirty, it didn't matter how you got there. Um, you know, if you had to be a few people up, uh, rough them up in the process, like, that's part of the gig. Um, to where now that's certainly not part of the conversation. Like it's very much like you want mm-hmm. people's physical, mental, emotional health to be 
kind of protected as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think it very much goes back to the conversation that we see constantly kind of burgeoning when we talk about Kubrick, like The Shining, amazing film, but (laughs) there was so much bullshit that happened on that set Mm -hmm. that it's hard to um, kind of separate that. And I think that Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of, if you want to peel back layers, can fall into that category yeah. as well. People really put through a lot of pain and um, mm-hmm. for the end product. Right. I mean, yeah. it's I mean, the it's like it's the intoxicating part of like of, of filmmaking in a way. You know, it's like obviously like we don't want any of that and. I guess obviously, you know, these conversations are, you know, more mainly had when it's a, a film that's actually good. You know, obviously, if it's a movie that's bad and these circumstances are uh, happen, then we're not having those conversations at all because they don't matter. But like when it's like, okay, like, but like it's like that's when it like kind of it's speaking to like the magic of the film where you're like kind of watching this and like even knowing like and being like. Uh, you know like I said afterwards I'm like kind of thinking like oh man like this is you know that kind of sucked for Marilyn Burns but it's like in the moment of watching it when you're like seeing that special thing just happen though and it's just like oh my gosh Mm -hmm. like I kind of can't think of anything else just because this is like so magical so it's like it's it's interesting and those kind of films that like have that kind of effect on you when you're watching them we'll get more into Marilyn Burns and Hanson specifically when we talk like the dinner scene, because that is pretty much Hanson describes that as the moment he's like, yeah, we all pretty much broke at that Mm -hmm. point. He's like, we're no longer acting at this point. Like we are crazed. Um, So kind of like, I think that sets up, I guess a long way to kind of set up the movie itself. So let's start diving into it and let's maybe talk about some of the more, I- iconic moments of this movie and what they mean. And I just want to start with that opening scrawl and the graveyard scene, because number one, you get like the dulcet tones of a young John Larroquette who's paid <laughs> in that. weed. Basically <laughs> he's paid a single joint to read perhaps the most iconic opening screed in horror movie history. Um, and he just does it for a joint, but the vibe of this opening is it, it it just it sets everything up like you get this discomfort right away. And Brian, you had mentioned like the whirring camera sounds that come and then those brief flashes yeah. of something perverse like do tell. Well, here's the thing. I had been trying to figure out for years what that sound was mm-hmm. um, and because no one would say. It was like, we're keeping that a secret. Um, and then this year I was showing my my colleague, my in, I'm a music teacher, and mm-hmm. um, she sent me this stuff. It's like, okay, scary stuff for Halloween, you know, like Halloween music. And she showed me this, she sent me this clip. It's a YouTube clip of this instrument called the Apprehension Engine. Mm. And if you look that up on YouTube... I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. That is definitely the sound. And it's this, it's basically sheet metal and, um, you know, little pieces of metal and a violin bow and uh, these different elements that are pulled together to make this sound. And it 
just sort of, I mean, it's, it's not just shivers up your spine. I mean, it is, it's like lightning. It's, it's so strong and it just sets up that beginning just, I mean, because originally it wasn't going to start with like the, the armadillo. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's going to just start with them in the van yeah. and the armadillo. To start it with the grave robbing uh, and, the, you know, this like corpse just falling apart in the sun and sort mm-hmm. of this weird sculpture. It's posed. Yeah. It's not just the grave robbing. It's it's posed. Yeah. It's, it's someone took the time to dig up this body and then deliberately pose it so that it looks like the monument is it's resting mm-hmm. on the monument and then cradling this other head. Yeah. And it's so perverse. Like it's yeah. it's almost like the what you would see like the the statue you would see walking into a mausoleum. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of perversion of being at your final rest is what what it is. Yeah, and I remember the first time I saw that I think it actually made me physically feel a little sick mm-hmm. to my stomach because yeah. it's just so, I mean, between those flashes where you just see little bits of the body to pulling back from that mm-hmm. and it holds on that for so long and you've got the um, radio going yeah. on, you know, the announcer talking about grave robbings in the area and mm-hmm. stuff and that it sets such a tone um, that I, I think it's so much stronger, even though it doesn't have that much to do with the rest of the movie that just kind of says, okay, you are in for something you haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Think of how far we've come, like the grave robbing in Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is mm-hmm. very, which is one of our favorite movies. Like Brian, we've had you on psychoanalysis to talk that movie, no love Frankenstein, but it's so quaint and antiquated compared to what absolutely. I don't think there's anything that could have prepared an audience in 1974 for seeing that kind of image. And you have like these solar flares behind it. So not only do you see this, this posed court desecrated corpse, but you, you get a sense of how hot it is and how like this thing is just like left to rot in the sun and it's just it hits your senses like in talking about like three-dimensional movies like mm-hmm. this one you get sight and sound and not instead of depth you almost get this like tactile feel of like how sticky everything mm-hmm. is in this movie it's a movie that i can almost smell mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know it's one of those i mean <laughs> i mean literally i know John Waters had the smell of vision cards, right? But <laughs> that would be so effective with a movie like this. Mm-hmm. Cause, but you almost don't need it. Cause I mean, no. especially when they get into the house, it's just like, you can just tell how gross everything is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the, and that, that photograph sound though, it like, I mean, the sound design really is so impressive throughout the entire film. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that they introduce it in and it sounds you know, it, it sounds appropriate for what you're watching, but it also still sounds just like also not like it should be there as well. Right. And it, it just works out so perfectly. And like also like um, with the shots of the body too, like kind of uh, really showing like the, the texture that you're going to like kind of see throughout this movie. Like 
like you were saying, like, I love whenever I can like kind of watch a movie and like, I get, I get like that, like watering in the back of my mouth. Cause I'm like, ew, I, I know what that feels like, or I know what that smells like. And, um, you know, like the way that everything kind of glistens in a way, like, even though it's dead, it's still sweating. Like that's how hot this movie is that even right. the corpses still sweat. Like that's disgusting. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Cause I watched this in, this is the first time I'd seen it in HD. I'd only ever seen it, you know, DVD or VHS. So actually I watched it on the shutter transfer and I never noticed those drips and everything before until watching it in that way. And it was like, it's that much more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I would add is that it's something that really stands out to me about the film is that throughout just the heat is so oppressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel it throughout, uh, just the sweat and the grossness, um, which I think is honestly, I think one of the things that when you talk about remakes of really kind of important or landmark iconic films, one of the things that I think that the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre really gets right is that oppressive heat feeling. Like, it's just like a sheen of sweat. And it's not like, oh, sexy sweat. It's like, no, I'm really uncomfortable and I need to go and mop off. Um, so I, there's just something that it really from moment one just cements you into the environment that you're going to be in and it does so in such a like it really like the sound of the camera the visuals that you're seeing the bright sun on the corpses and just the drippiness it's just like oh it's so hot, it's so real, it's so visceral. Um, I think it's really, really powerful. And I think one of the things that just is a cornerstone of this film. Yeah, 100%. A couple other things about this scene. We, Brian, you mentioned like the radio voiceover mm-hmm. talking about the uh, grave robbings, but it's not just that that's revealed in those voiceovers. Like right. basically mm-hmm. get a world that is in complete decay. Like there's mention of like a 18 month old that has been found like chained up in an attic in Dallas. There's a collapse in Atlanta that killed like uh, 18 persons. There's like talk of like, I think wildfire as well. Um, you essentially, what you have is this world that is kind of collapsing in on itself. It's letting you know in this really subtle way that like everything is terrible. At this point, it's like when you combine that with the heat, you almost have that meme of the dog sitting in hell going, this is fine because you're going to have this like group of kids that are kind of oblivious to what's going on around them. Like it's almost like an adventure for them. The other moment that stands out is you get your, you, you see Franklin and the old man share a moment. Like there's this old man who is like lying on the ground and mm-hmm. he can't get up. 
Like he is so inebriated that he's just unable to stand. And he's very much like almost like a harbinger where he's like people I've seen things. People think it's the sputterings of a crazy man, but they should listen to me. And you see kind of Franklin like really intensely staring at him and you you're making this connection right away. Like these are two people that are like a can't stand up. So they're almost like they're disregarding with this old man. This guy maybe has seen what's happened in the graveyard, but he's written off as the old coot and very much like Franklin is someone that no one is going to, they're going to disregard throughout the rest of the movie. Like he's going to become less than, but that's what's so important. And I think mm-hmm. that Franklin really is the heart um, in terms of a lot. I say hard in, I think it's both him and Sally um, mm. because I love their dynamic. Their relationship, I think, is just really, really interesting and well-developed throughout the film. I think the little moments that they have together are perfect. Um, but if you notice, it's always Franklin that is talking to the folks or connecting to the folks that the others want to cast aside mm-hmm. disparage. Um, we see that with uh, the hitchhiker. Like, at first, he's like, no, why the fuck would we pick this person up? Mm-hmm. Like, no, keep it moving. But when this person is actually, like, in the van, he's like, well, so I see that you also have a disability mm-hmm. or something that has marked you as different. I guess... I have to talk to you because same. So I, I don't know, like just these early moments really cement um, my appreciation of Franklin. And I think it's also really important to know, like the first moment that we see of this crew of folks is them wheeling Franklin out to piss Mm -hmm. in a coffee cup a like 10 coffee cup round thing um again because post ada and we follow this up with the scene of other people going to a gas station where they can go into the bathroom he uh, he can't right um so i I don't know, like, there's always been something that from the beginning, Franklin has always been kind of like, well, we're in a different territory, I'm a different person of this group, so I need to talk, I need to be a cushion. There's a lack of dignity in the pulling over to pee scene and it's Mm -hmm. not just that like when the 18 wheeler goes by and it kicks up this a massive like gust of air going by and franklin like falls out rolls down the hill it is presumably like covered in his own urine at that point as well which thinking of like having a pant full of like hot sticky urine and then getting back in that van and that heat is like ugh. but it's just the idea of having to like pee on the side of the road into a jar while your friends are like, can we get the fuck out of here? Like this is immediate, like lack of, of, of dignity that I think. Well, I'm literally like the next stop is them stopping in the gas station where the girls Mm -hmm. are like, well, we want to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. 
And it's like, hey, you know, it would have been great, Franklin, going to the bathroom. Yeah. Where he could have had some space, some privacy, mm-hmm. um, anything. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I I always find it really interesting that our first introduction to these characters is Franklin being willed out to piss mm-hmm. on the side of the street. And then he topples. And the only person that seems concerned is his sister, who is right. screaming. Because she's like, no, like, how about the fuck? This is uh, no. Just the fact that you would have a movie where a person is doing that, like rolling outside to piss in a cup. We're not that far removed from Psycho where there was real controversy about a toilet flushing in a movie. Right. Like mm-hmm. that was considered too risque for audiences at the time. Like, how dare you, sir, flush a toilet? And now you have a person like, you know, pissing into a jar in the side of a road. Like all bets are off. You know, we are rolling up our sleeves. Let's get into the hitchhiker. Let's move on and talk a little bit about that van scene. Because you get a, a great moment before that that I almost wanted to should have led the episode with this but you have pam reading from her book of astrology which you know strike one in my book um (laughs) but um she is reading first of all she says like oh no capricorn's ruled by saturn which sure um (laughs) but the moment like it's this prescient moment like there are moments when we cannot believe that what is happening is really true Pinch yourself and you may find that it is. And it's just fucking awesome preamble because like this isn't just a horror movie where bad shit happens to people. Like this is a movie where like the unimaginable, there's nothing that can prepare you for so much of what you see in this movie. And that is the power of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just that these kids are killed. It's like what they go through and what they have to see is so bizarre and out of the ordinary it just fucks with your head so that is the perfect piece of dialogue right there and then you get um i mean and she even mentions Mm -hmm. uh uh saturn being in retrograde Mm -hmm. which is um not too dissimilar to like in you know very current days whenever uh mercury is the one that we apparently Mm -hmm. have to look out for uh more often i have no idea what that means to be honest so please explain it's always like uh it's a like um, I mean, I don't know it specifically. I, I I'm I'm a, a light astrology person, but mm-hmm. like essentially though, it's like whenever um it, people kind of use it as an explanation when just like kind of things aren't going their way, um a string of bad luck usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of because uh, I remember she has a line when she says that Saturn's in retrograde and it like. Um, whenever this happens, it um, has people behave um, mm-hmm. in ways that they normally wouldn't or in, um, yep. you know, in like extreme, uh, extreme behavior. So I do love how mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's kind of setting up that, oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's hot right now. So people are already delirious. Mm-hmm. And then Saturn also in retrograde. So people are really not in their right minds right now. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody that we're going to encounter on yeah. this journey. <laughs> This is where Franklin gets on my nerves, to be honest. Like he starts sharing the story of that they pass the slaughterhouse and everyone's like, they smell it and they're like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is. And Franklin's like, oh, yeah, here's how they kill everything. And he starts talking about 
hitting it with the um, hitting it with the sledgehammer and how they don't always die. Just another neat piece of foreshadowing for later in the movie. Right. Uh, and now how they're doing like the guns and he starts making the shook and like using his hands and everyone's like, dude, not here. Not right now. We're hot. We're tired. We're miserable. Like we just saw some fucking crazy ass rotting corpse on like a, on top of a grave, like please. And like, he's so, involved like this is i think the moment where i mean i can I, go either way on him no i mean i agree because i mean it's like uh a lot of the time he's he's you know complaining about how he kind of doesn't want to be there he's he doesn't mm-hmm. really like any of sally's friends but he's going along because like it's uh you know concerns him and sally's family mm-hmm. um and i i you know i get it that you want to that it's a family matter and like you feel like you should but like if you really didn't want to go, then you didn't have to go. And now you're just mm-hmm. like in the van, you can't read the room. Um, and you know, and you're kind of just like getting there by his nerves. Cause mm-hmm. like, isn't that why, um, mm-hmm. they have him pee on the side of the road. Cause he insisted that they stop then. Like, no. like weren't they like, no, we're good. When we get to a gas station, but he's like, no, no, I insist. Which, uh, so I, I can I, understand <laughs> that. I mean, I can. Like, you know, and I think that it's something where if it was like Jerry, who's driving and he's able-bodied, like for him to just get out and pee is like a 30 second thing. Like you wouldn't think anything of it. And it's because of the added mm-hmm. production that goes, okay, we got to like, they have a makeshift ramp. They got to bring him out, give him this thing. So it's not just as easy as pulling over, pop a squat and then get back in. Like it's a whole thing. True. But True. when you have to go, like I wouldn't want to sit in my, in a chair and, and that have that happen. Like, pull over dude like it's not that mm-hmm. you know not that bad nicole i see your note here and you can't not you can't not we can't let that hang mm-hmm. so please you need to <laughs> talk about your experience here if you don't mind yeah so i worked on a hot confinement every now and then and yeah we would have to kill some of the animals that came through and a sledgehammer or certain mechanisms were kind of the quickest and easiest. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really small. Um, I'm four foot eight. And so uh, even being shorter then, like it would be kind of a battle against me and the pig. Mm-hmm. To be like, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Like you have to calm the fuck down. So I can kill you because you have some, you actually have some kind of like uh, physical presence over me. Um, No, it's horrific. And I think that I, in one of the moments that I really like in this exchange, when they first pick up the hitchhiker is these folks kind of recoiling or kind of going back and being like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. That's gross. But yet they're going to pick up a hamburger or Mm -hmm. some barbecue at the next stop because they're not making the connection. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. I can't like, uh, like, no, you have to have some kind of through 
thought process there. And so I kind of appreciate the hitchhiker being a character that highlights that, that these are people that are like, well, this is bad, this is gross, and we don't like this, but it, it not really necessarily wanting to propose any kind of positive change. Right. I think there's a time and a place, though, and I'm going to relate a personal story in that when I lived with like nine other punk kids at a house in Boston, one of them was like dating a professional dominatrix at the time. And Mm -hmm. she would come home and like we would be cooking out and we'd like be eating dinner and she would be like telling us stories of like her day in the dungeon of like putting like cigarettes out on, on men's testicles. And I'm like, I love this story. I want to hear this story. Like I am here for it. However, right now, like I am eating some yeah. chicken drumsticks and corn on the cob. And like, this is not what I want to hear right now. Can you give us this story? in I don't know, 15 minutes. And it was like, no, I want to tell it now. And it's like, <laughs> well, fuck off then. Right? Exactly. Like, exactly. And I think that, Again, it's never framed like I don't eat meat. And people are like, well, is it because you worked this job? And I'm like, absolutely not. It's because my body stopped processing meat. Mm -hmm. Like really hard kind of like to break down proteins. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't eat meat. Had nothing to do with that, like I had kind of been on that journey before, had nothing to do with that. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I, there's also like, I appreciate that there's not so much of a judgment of, I get how your family has continued to kind of sustain mm-hmm. in this area. Um, again, I think that Franklin seems really attuned to that. Um, and I'm really interested to kind of hear what other folks' perceptions mm-hmm. of like that initial interaction well, might be. Let's talk the hitchhiker. Let's definitely talk about that and what goes on in the scene because even though there's no it's there's no tangible proof of it, I've always read him as a veteran that has returned home from the war that perhaps there is some shell shock that is going on here. Like I, I've just always in my mind's eye have given him this backstory of like, he's come back. He's suffering from what we would now like call combat, uh, combat induced PTSD. And he doesn't know how to react to this world around him. And one of the things I really like is I think Franklin or one of them asked like, Oh, you work at the, the new slaughterhouse and and he's like no but i i was just there and in your my brain you could see him going there every day and just being a nuisance Mm -hmm. like constantly talking about the old ways or getting in people's faces and some of the people Mm. there just like kind of rolling their eyes being like oh this dude is harmless but he's just kind of a pain in the rear and others being like this guy's got to go but you know that he's like kind of like puck in a midsummer night's dream like he's this agent of of chaos basically um i mean yeah i definitely can i can definitely like read that um for sure and uh and this scene like how i was saying earlier like kind of gives me like the the wes anderson vibes of like the way that just the way that it's shot with their exchanges of it like you know like you see 
the the awkward pauses because you know they're giving them a chance to like try to have like a interaction and mm-hmm. even though you know they're getting a chance he just like kind of just keeps doing you know mm-hmm. exceedingly uh strange things you know as it keeps mm-hmm. going on and it's like oh we you know we want to give him this chance um and just like the way that they like the the angle that they're like cut like pretty close to him and then it's pretty close to franklin and then mm-hmm. you like have the group shot and just the way that it goes around there's like even like a I love the uh, the whole the whole picture a uh, bit. Like, I mean, that's that moment takes up like quite a bit of time of him like mm-hmm. taking the time to take his camera off, pulls it out, frames it up, and then he's literally like framing them up for like fifteen seconds mm-hmm. before he finally takes the picture. And then Franklin just goes, "Oh, it didn't turn out so good." And then he goes, "Oh, it's like black." Yeah, he goes, "It didn't turn out so good." And he goes. No, it's a good picture. You can pay me now. And like it, the whole timing of that whole mm-hmm. interaction just like felt very Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like the paper boy in Better Off Dead. He I just want wants two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting that Franklin is the one that is like you can see even d- despite how bizarre and unsettling he, the hitchhiker is, he is still seeming to want to long out to to reach out and make a connection with somebody else. And I could be wrong, but I didn't read him inviting them back to his house for dinner as a way to kind of lure them in and kill them. Like I legit thought he was like, Hey, it would be an awesome idea if these new people came to my house and ate. Now I think if they did take him up on that offer, they would still wind up dead. Um, But in his mind, I don't think he's making that connection yet. He's like, Oh, here are these nice strangers I've met that are giving me a ride. Come to my place to eat. Um, and they would then wind up dead much quicker. They would have got the house of a thousand corpses treatment. If that was the mm-hmm. case, if they just went back for dinner, they would have got dinner. They would have gotten a show and it would have been a whole thing, but no. Now I'm pitching, picturing Jim Seidel and Karen Black's little lingerie and boa. And that's a whole thing. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Nicole, what say you? I think it's important to note that when they're first approaching the hitchhiker, um, it's very much like, "Ah, who is this person? Mm -hmm. We're iffy. But once they approach him, they see, like, the birthmark Mm -hmm. on his face. Um, Everyone kind of recoils. And... I think that is such an interesting way to kind of frame the inner. Nicole, you're mute, my friend. Sorry. That's all right. You want to take that from the top? Yeah. um, I just think it's really interesting. So when they're first approaching the hitchhiker, I think it's Pam. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe he's cute. Um, So they drive up. They see that he has kind of the port wine stain, the port wine birthmark Mm -hmm. on his face. And they kind of recoil at that. I think that he really sets the tone of, again, these folks that are coming in and being like, well... Uh, how are we judging the folks in this community? Mm-hmm. But 
not paying any attention to how they're judging someone that's kind of within their own kind of group. So, and I think that it's, I mean, even Franklin at first is like, no, just keep fucking driving. Mm-hmm. Like, no, don't, like, hello, you just keep driving. I'm sorry about it. But he's also the first person that's like, all right, well, I guess I actually have to have a conversation with them. And so, I don't know. Like, the hitchhiker is such an interesting person because I think you're exactly right. Someone that's very much coded as having, like, post-combat PTSD um, and kind of impacts of combat. And yet how they're integrated into the family, into the community is Mm -hmm. really fascinating. It's, I get what you're saying about not trying not to be judgmental of these persons that might be different. However, his behavior doesn't really do him any favors. No. He almost blows up the van with some gunpowder, like burning up the picture. Uh, which is not good. And then he like takes out this like straight razor and cuts his own palm. And, you know, I am a pretty open-minded person. <laughs> However, there are limits. When the, when the blood well, smearing starts coming yeah. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We gotta, we gotta uh-huh. pump the brakes a little there, buddy. Yeah. That is well, like the second his... time I pick you yeah. up. It's okay to cut yourself. Like the right. first time yeah, I pick you, you up. But what, I think that what drove him to be like, all right, y'all are on this level. So now I'm going to mark you mm-hmm. and being food. Um, I don't know. Like, it's really interesting because again, you, I agree, like, no, by no stretch of the imagination is anything that he does once he's kind of, like, in the van, like, like, I don't know how anyone would kind of navigate that. Mm-hmm. It's challenging, to say the least, but I think that you have one person in that group that's like, I guess I'll talk to you. I guess I'll try to listen, but I'm not fucking trained. I don't know. Um, so I guess I struggle with like, what was his intent in being on the side of the road? Was it in fact to mark this group of people as victims? Or was it something else? We're never really given, I think, a mm-hmm. bridge piece to say that because he doesn't necessarily seem at first that combative. He's like, I'm going to take a picture of you. Oh, you don't want to pay for it? All right, well, mm-hmm. like, now I have to kill you. I have to mark you for death. You didn't pay. Like, this is pre-NFT. I I think... <laughs> I think that... I think the thing about, like, guiding them to victimhood is more of a thing in the 2003 movie, yeah. where you see the events there. Like, they're very much 
manipulated into becoming victims or here i i felt like he was on his way back from like whatever chaos he was creating at the slaughterhouse and like the sawyers are not so much luring victims in so much as like they're opportunists like when the chance arises like i don't think this was the first group of people they've ever killed and eaten but i don't think they're going out of their way to hunt for victims and i think like the because of the cook and we'll talk about that when we talk more about the family um but needless to say like they eventually after he tries to blow, burn down the van with this picture they and then hack off franklin's arm uh which is again it's weird that he goes for well because maybe not weird because he marks franklin's maybe the weak one because franklin is is not able-bodied but he cuts franklin's arm and then they kick him out and you get that wonderful bizarre fucked up moment where he's blowing these giant raspberries and kicking the van and ed neal's kicks in this moment like these feeble Mm kind of like his hands are like over his head and god Mm -hmm. it's just again the strangeness of everything is where this movie gets its power well i think it's also important to note that the actor who plays franklin had Mm -hmm. originally I think auditioned out for that role. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, Mm. I think that um, it was more the thought of like, you don't look what we're going for for this, but you could fit in here. So Mm -hmm. again, it's just something that, especially now when I watch the movie, I'm always really cognizant of in these early scenes, because I think they set up so much of what, happens later on absolutely yeah just the total discomfort of that sequence it's it sets you on edge and keeps you there uh for for what's coming Mm -hmm. um, pretty soon after this really right Okay, so that seems like a really natural place for us to take a break right now uh, as we're a couple hours in. So we are going to be back in a week with the second part of our breakdown of 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Next week, we will dive more into the iconic parts of the movie. We'll talk about the Sawyer family dynamics, and we'll go specifically into uh, Sally as a final girl and what she did to kind of launch that trope. We have some really fun stuff planned, plus some other stuff going on for that show so we hope you've enjoyed this so far and if you have please head to our site the pod and the pendulum pod and the pendulum.com that's where all of our archived episodes are wherever you are getting this show please go ahead take a minute rate review and subscribe to us your ratings and your reviews go a long way to listeners uh, new listeners finding us and they move us up the rankings so we'll be back next time we hope you have dug what you've heard so far and we'll talk to you soon Thanks for tuning in.